Hello? Hello? Is this thing on? Yes, it is. It is on. Welcome to this, the Red Bulletin Podcast. I'm your host, Andreas Georges. We got another preview podcast. Uh, we hope you had fun listening to our um, Hot Rods and Hells Angels one for a couple weeks back. It's a marked kind of a new direction for us with these previews. We want to tell you little nuggets of stories. Um, hopefully that'll provide a little bit of context for our guests coming up next week. Uh, we got a really, really interesting dude from the country of Holland, um, a musician, and uh, I'll fill you in on him a little bit later. But let's let's start in Hollywood, as we all like to. We are in Los Angeles. It is uh, overcast and raining, which is just the way we like it after uh, the endless summer of our life here. Um, so we're in L.A., we're talking about Hollywood, but we're talking about Hollywood in 1932, and this is at a time when the studio system was just starting to amass its power. Um, you had stars like Clark Gable and Joan Crawford beginning to rule the screen. Of course, the real power was not with them. It was really with the studio heads, and it was the age of creating big-budget films, um, mostly musicals, I should say, for mass consumption to show off the new talkies technology that had revolutionized entertainment. Uh, and none was big, obviously, as King Kong. And it was too big. Way too big, in fact. It was produced by RKO, which was one of the top five studios at the time. Uh, and it was, for them, kind of like a final massive gamble. Uh, musicals they had produced uh, were not hits. They did just sign a young actress by the name of Katherine Hepburn, uh, but she had yet to become the legend uh, she later was. So they invested in this picture called King Kong and a wonky, unproven technology called stop-motion animation to tell the story of a love affair between a damsel in distress and a massive gorilla. Uh, it was not cheap. Stop-motion was a revolutionary, but it was a very painstaking process. Um, it involved, like, the building of dioramas, and, and, and there were, like, glass sheets, and they, they had the dioramas spread over, like, several tables. And and you had to you had to like control the frame by frame it was film frame by frame and you had to control the movement of a model gorilla and that was then layered onto actual footage of uh, real actors doing their scenes, um, but it was the predecessor to what we now think of as CGI. Anyone who's ever seen a Fast and Furious film knows exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe you are a fan of the Marvel franchises. All of these franchises, all of these major Hollywood blockbusters today have King Kong to thank. Um, these are the guys who brought you like Tim Burton's like Nightmare Before Christmas. All these guys credit King Kong and the work done by this cat, uh, Willis O'Brien, with establishing the field that would eventually become visual effects. So anyway, despite this amazing technology, the cut scene uh, by RKO, uh, the studio heads, uh, caused a major freakout. Uh, the idea of a love story between a massive albeit animated, gorilla, and a scantily clad lady who, by the way, had uh, the most interesting name. It was an actress by the name of Faye Ray. <laughs> and I say Ray oddly because it's W-R-A-Y. Uh, maybe they just had cooler names in the 30s. That's my what I'm positing right now. Maybe maybe that's a controversial statement. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, I thought it was really evocative, very interesting name. Faye Ray. She was the damsel. Her name, she played the character. I believe the name of the character was Anne. Um, odd. The sound effects were odd. The sound effects were low-tech. Sound engineer 
by the name of Murray Spivak. Uh, he would tap on his assistant's chest to provide the sound for King Kong doing the same. Uh, Kong's roar, very interesting tidbit, was none other than Spivak growling through a megaphone. Um, the film needed music, but music back then was only for the opening credits and the end credits. No one had ever composed music for a film. And the studio heads were like, we're not going to start now because the budget's already at $600,000, which, okay, in today's money is like $10.7 million, which, I don't know, Game of Thrones gets made for $100 million, one episode of it. So even today, that's kind of not that big. But back then, it was massive. Um, and $600,000 uh, was the absolute limit. That was already double the budget they had planned. Um, and they, they wouldn't allow it. And uh, so, enter stage right, the dashing, the indispensable, the courageous Marion Cooper, World War I combat pilot, POW, journalist, adventurer, and filmmaker. Kong was his baby. He, in fact, claimed in a dream that he had had that, uh, that it was a dream of a gorilla terrorizing New York City, and that was the inspiration for the film. Uh, it was actually made, it was based, King Kong first appeared, by the way, in like uh, this book called The Lost World by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. You might have heard him. He did a little thing called Sherlock Holmes. Anyway, so he stepped in and he said, I'm going to pay whatever it takes to provide this missing piece. Uh, the music, because they had a real challenge. The music had to suspend belief and create sympathy for King Kong. Um, and so uh, we'll introduce kind of the main focus to, of today's little story, uh, of today's preview podcast, a guy named Max Steiner. Uh, Max was a child musical prodigy in Vienna. Uh, he moved to America in 1914. Uh, at that point, I believe he had already conducted the London Symphony or conducted orchestras in, in London. He was 18 at the time. You know, one of those like Mozart type dudes, which is appropriate because he actually was from Austria as well. Um, he uh, he composed Broadway musicals first. He landed in New York. Uh, and then he joined RKO Pictures in 1929. Within a year, uh, he was the music supervisor. He was one of these like brilliant but low on self-confidence kind of artiste types. And he was the one that Cooper tapped to, to come up with it. And what Steiner did next was revolutionary. In eight weeks, he composed a score unlike anything filmgoers had heard of up until that point. Um, he created melodies for each character, uh, themes that would weave sweetly together during tender moments and then build tension ahead of major clashes. Uh, Kong had a theme, uh, which was probably recognizable to anyone today. It was one of those like, dun, dun, dun. Very, very frightening, uh, but consistent. And the music created pacing, and, and crucially, it created uh, sympathy for Kong. So that when the end comes, uh, spoiler alert, uh, the audience is invested in him. It was the first time that music was designed precisely for certain moments in the film and not just kind of a soaring score that accompanied the opening and the ending or it just kind of was played almost separately parallel to whatever was going on on screen. During that time when he was composing it, Steiner called the sound engineer Spivak. He called him almost nightly, worried that the studio heads weren't happy with the final product. You know, sensitive. They were. Uh, so were audiences. Film made $100,000 in its first week, an enormous sum, and $1.7 overall during its domestic release. And 
many attributed to the music. Uh, it's considered the beginning of modern film composing and as one of the greatest film scores ever. Steiner uh, had himself a bit of a career, went on to compose over 300 film scores, including uh, two you might have heard of, uh, small films, Casablanca, Gone with the Wind. He won three Oscars. He made it onto a U.S. Postal Service stamp, and he has a plaque on his childhood home in Vienna. And I don't know about you, but having a plaque on your childhood home is kind of badass because that's literally... That's etched on your home. Other people are living there now, right? But, but you actually live there, and that's what's important. Whoever comes after you, not so much. This is my house. This will always be my house. And it was. He passed away in 1971, Max Steiner, after a glorious career. He paved the way for outstanding modern film scores like The Blade Runner, Glory, Sicario, and Arrival. I love Arrival. And this brings me to next week's guest, uh, Tom Holkenberg. He's a former international club hit producer extraordinaire, I should say, a musician of many talents, and turned a respected film composer. He's behind the music for Deadpool, Mad Max, Black Mass, um, really great surfing film that one of our guests, Ian Walsh, uh, a previous podcast, uh, starred in called Distance Between Dreams. Um, He's an incredibly personable Dutchman. He's got a very inquisitive mind, and he's got this wonderful appetite for chaos and uh, really believes that life isn't worth living unless you tear everything down and start from scratch, which is exactly how we went from producing an international hit to starting at the very bottom of the film composition, film scoring industry in Los Angeles. So check in next week for an interview with Holkenberg. Uh, whose producer alias, I should note, is also uh, it's Junkie XL. I want to send a special shout-out this week to our producer, T. Rizza, uh, for amassing the research that helped this uh, make this pod possible. She's flexing on the other side of the glass, as I say that. Uh, she relied heavily on the documentary, uh, The Making of Kong, The Eighth Wonder of the World. So shout-out to those filmmakers. It's available on YouTube. Uh, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. 